Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode was recorded on the day that Joe Biden was inaugurated as the President of the United States. And I talk about that with today's guest, Hillary Benn, and the implications perhaps for politics here and what the Labour Party might learn. But this is, as you would imagine, a phenomenal conversation with someone who, in his own right, is one of... Uh, the most influential and talented politicians that the Labour Party has produced, and of course is the son of one of the most influential and talented politicians that the Labour Party has produced. So we talk about that, about growing up as Tony Benn's son, um, about Hillary's politics, where they come from, at what point they diverged and why, uh, his time in government, his time in opposition, and his time until recently as chair of the Select Committee, which was initially the exiting the European Union Select Committee, and then uh, the Select Committee that was scrutinising the future relationship. And that Select Committee ceased to exist just a few days ago. Um, so I began by asking Hillary uh, whether it was uh, whether it was a sad moment, whether he felt sad that the Select Committee, uh, that until just a few days ago he chaired, no longer exists. Well, I have enjoyed working with colleagues it's been a bit challenging on occasion because unlike most select committees that reach a consensus about what they're going to say that hasn't always been possible in the last four and a half years a wonderful team um, of clerks and specialists in the house of commons who have been just fantastic and i i suppose my my biggest regret is we we never got to hear from Lord Frost, who negotiated the agreement. And since Parliament had set us up to to look at this, I didn't feel that we were able to complete the task we were given by the House of Commons, because because it was all agreed so late. Uh, we expired, a bit like Cinderella's coach, the witching hour came and we disappeared. And we weren't able to ask a lot of questions 
of Lord Frost about what is an extremely complex agreement with lots of implications and ramifications, which we are beginning to learn about as time passes. Well, do you think it's right that the committee effectively expired when it did, that when the deal came in, that, that effectively made the work of the committee moribund? Or do you think that it should have been able to, not just question Lord Frost, but as you say, scrutinise this deal? Well, I think, in fairness, when the government set us up after the 2019 election, they probably assumed that a deal would be done by the end of October, which would give us two and a bit months to scrutinise the terms of the agreement and report to the House of Commons. But of course, it wasn't the end of October, it was Christmas Eve. And we famously produced an initial analysis of the agreement in two days, basically, uh, in time for the debate on the agreement in the House on the 30th of uh, December. Um, but they they said it's going to exist for 12 months. And I wrote and said to Jacob Rees-Mogg, can we have a bit more time? And he said no. So that was it. So was your Christmas just gone? spent reading that deal and, and coming up with bullet points or did you have christmas well day i off? have to i have to confess to you matt i did not spend christmas day pouring over 1297 pages of uh the uh, deal but it was a slightly it was certainly an unusual christmas eve because uh, i did quite a lot of interviews that day on a deal which we'd only heard the headlines of we we were only we hadn't had a chance to read it all and the committee team did a fantastic job um but it's got so much in it take the musicians issue which i questioned yes. boris johnson about at the liaison committee last week um as you know from the the letter that's just been published today uk musicians are up in arms because they know it's going to be much more difficult for them to go and tour in Europe. And, you know, we have such a strong and successful um, music industry, both popular, classical, you name it, all, all parts of the sector. And I think this is a, a harbinger of what is to come, because as people discover what they can no longer do that they had got used to doing, then these issues will arise and the debate in British politics will change from what it has been for the last four and a half years, were you in favour of leaving the European Union or not? I was strongly against, we lost, we're out, it's over. The question now is, okay, so they're still our neighbours and friends, they're still our biggest trading partners, um, what kind of relationship do we want to have in future? So, would it be sensible to try and reach an agreement with the European Union to make it easier for their musicians and performers to come here and for ours to go there? in the interests of you know cultural life and employment and uh, our respective economies well that would make a lot of sense that's not undoing brexit which some people might claim it's about building on the relationship and what is striking about the the deal that was agreed is it envisages that there will be further agreements between the eu and the uk over the months and years ahead and i, I welcome that process because geography the geography hasn't changed the relationship has but the geography hasn't and just personally you know you, you chair this select committee that's really been at the forefront of the biggest discussion we've had as a country for the past at least four or five years now it allowed you to, to scrutinize all the major players to be yourself a major player in that debate and then the committee just ends and that part of your life ends the kind of that purpose i guess it's not so much about the status as 
that was your job as well as being an MP. And now, in a weird way, it must be like having been moved in a reshuffle. You've that that that, that all that time spent, all that focus is now, you know, has ended. Is there a sense of sadness? Well, you know, Matt, nothing in life is permanent. No, that's and that I was going to say that. And that's politics. Yeah, you are you're performing a role, and you never know what's round uh, the corner. Um, it was certainly interesting. It was certainly challenging. It was certainly at the heart of British politics. And during that extraordinary period, when Mrs. May had lost a majority, and Parliament, well, Parliament took control of what was happening because what was able to get through the House of Commons depended on how the sum total of individual MPs voted. And this is, you know, this has not been the norm. And certainly both Theresa May and Boris Johnson's Prime Minister found that rather difficult uh, to deal with because uh, there was famously no majority in the House of Commons for a no-deal Brexit. And we passed those two bills that forced first Theresa May and then Boris Johnson to apply for more time. And, and actually we, we won that battle because when push came to shove, in the negotiations. I know it went to the wire, there were uh, difficult moments, threat to walk away and so on, but I think ultimately the Prime Minister realised he could not possibly inflict the consequences of a no-deal Brexit on the economy, particularly as we're in the middle of our worst economic crisis for 300 years anyway because of Covid and that proved to be the case and that's why I spent most of last year saying for all the difficulties uh, I think there will be some sort of an agreement. And so there was, because it was in the interests of both parties to reach an agreement. Why would you want to end this relationship on such a, a sour note uh, with all of the consequences there would have been for our future relationship with our friends and neighbours? You mentioned the, the pieces of legislation the House of Commons passed. One of them, the European Union Withdrawal Number 2 Act 2019, was dubbed the Ben Act. I mean, obviously, you're, you're operating entirely out of political principle at the time, and you're, you're wanting the, the best outcome for the country. Um, sort of weird to have an act named after yourself. I know it wasn't officially called the Ben Act, but did you feel comfortable having it referred to like that? Well, mine was the first name on the bill, and the, the previous act, uh, Yvette Cooper's, was the first name on the bill. But it really was a team effort. And I think it's important to understand that because we were working with MPs from other political parties. We had very different views as to how we wanted the Brexit story to end. There were Conservatives who said openly, look, whenever a deal comes to Parliament, I'm going to vote for him. But the one thing I agree with you on is we cannot possibly leave with no agreement whatsoever. And if it hadn't been a team effort, a cross-party team effort, then we wouldn't have got the majority. So, yes, it will be a, a footnote in uh, constitutional history, but it was a time of great innovation because the, for those who follow the intricacies of Parliament, the business motion that we had to pass to, to pave the way for it had to repel all um, uh, borders who would want to upset the process. Now, I always objected, I have to say, to the reference to, you know, MPs seizing control of the agenda. I'm terribly sorry, but what are we sent to the House of Commons to do, but to seize control of the agenda and to vote? And if people wanted the bill, they could vote for it. If they didn't want the bill, they could vote against it. Uh, that's democracy at work. And after all, MPs 
do legislate through private members' bills on a Friday. I'd like to reform that system uh, to make it easier. All this was, and all Yvette's uh, bill was, was a private members' bill on a different day of the week. There was speculation at the time, obviously so much wild speculation, but for a period of time it looked like you might become Prime Minister. I mean, do you, do you think that was ever possible? No, not really. But it, but that speculation was a reflection of the very uncertain time because the the government wasn't in control, and governments don't like not being in control. And apart from Brexit, it meant that the Conservatives brought hardly any legislation to Parliament because they didn't know whether they would get it through or not. It it, it was a quite a certainly unique in my political memory, which goes back a little bit. Um, but in the end, it turned out differently and the Conservatives won a large majority and we're now living with the consequences of that. So did you ever have Conservative MPs saying to you, look, this is extraordinary times. If you can command a majority on the floor of the House of Commons for a period of time, we'll support you. Um, there were some discussions, but it never came to pass and it was never going to come to pass because it would uh, have required all Labour MPs and the other minor parties and some Conservatives and it wasn't going to happen frankly but lots of people were speculating. It was an extraordinary but, you know, In life, time. in politics, you have to deal with what is in front of you. Yes, you try and anticipate what's going to come next but I was focused on what I thought was the most important task which was one to prevent a no-deal Brexit and then secondly, to try and uh, campaign for a confirmatory referendum, which did split opinion, of course, because those who voted for Brexit thought that was the denial of their uh, original decision. The problem, I think, with the original referendum was that it made it clear a majority wanted to leave, but it didn't answer the question that then bedeviled Parliament subsequently, which is, well, what kind of relationship? Because it's like a divorce. You can reach an amicable settlement, you can share the kids, you can divide up the possessions and so on, or you can walk out the door, slam it and say, I never want to see or talk to you again. Those were the two ends of the spectrum. And because that was so contested, uh, we didn't actually know what people thought about that. And I, I suppose a second referendum would have allowed the public to make that choice. And I suppose the other consideration is, does the public on a big decision like this have the right to change its mind? And I would argue, yes, the public does have a right to change its mind. Whether it would have done so if there had been a second referendum, I don't know. And let's say, and it doesn't have to be you at that particular point in history, but another situation like that were to happen where you have a, effectively a hung parliament, a contentious issue that can't command a majority on the floor of the House of Commons. Constitutionally, what would have happened? Let's say someone like Hillary Benn finds themselves in the position you did and you can then command a majority. Would you, what happens? Would you have become prime minister for like a day, a week? Would, would you have been prime minister say for a fortnight and then not been prime minister after that issue was resolved? How would have it all worked? Well, we, we don't really have much experience of this. And, and remember Matt, we were living through a time when the constitutional uh, niceties and traditions were being set aside. The, the clearest example of that was the prorogation decision. When it was quite clear why the Prime Minister 
wanted a, what was it, a five-week prorogation? Because he didn't want Parliament doing what Parliament was doing. And I remember sitting in the, the cafe at the Labour Party conference, uh, listening to Lady Hale's judgment. It was, you know, extraordinary and astonishing that the, the uh, Supreme Court wanted to go there. But she was very clear. She said, you want a prorogation? You can have one. Normally it's a week. But five weeks? Well, what's all that about? And we find it to be unlawful. And what that, I think, reminds you is that we don't have a written constitution in the, Uni in the United Kingdom, marked contrast to the United States of America, of course. And so much of what happens and how it happens is based on precedent and tradition. And when the boundaries of that are tested, then I think everyone feels that they, the, the ground beneath their feet is shifting. Now, you could conceive of circumstances in which there might have been a government of national unity for a particular purpose. But as we saw in the Second World War, when uh, a uh, coalition government was formed, it ended the moment the objective had been achieved. In that case, the defeat of the Nazis. Uh, and in this, we're speculating, would have been resolving Brexit one way or the other. And then you'd go back to normal business, which would probably be an election. That was certainly the case in 1945, when extraordinarily, the, the nation said to Winston Churchill, you've done an amazing job in leading us through this conflict. But you know what? We want something different for the future. And there's that um, astonishing bit of footage I only saw about 15 years ago of Winston Churchill addressing a rally, I think, at the Greyhound Stadium in Walthamstow, and he was being booed. <laughs> and that told you something yeah. about what was uh, to come. My, my dad had come back from uh, the war and, and drove uh, around the Labour candidate in Westminster. And he told this wonderful story that they were, I think, in Covent Garden, and the Labour candidate was driving and hit the car in front. Now, in politics, it's generally not a very good idea to bash into the cars of people whose votes you are seeking. Uh, but Dad seized the microphone and he said to the, the woman who was driving, he said, Madam, you have just been hit by the Labour candidate for the cities of Westminster. And he said a cheer went up among the crowd, which he felt was a portent of the result that was to come. And so it proved. Your father, obviously, is such a huge figure in Labour politics, in British politics, an iconic surname. And obviously you have beyond Tony relatives that were decorated and, and revered politicians in both the Liberal and the Labour Party. Does being Tony Benn's son, I'm sure it has its advantages, I'm sure it has its disadvantages. How do you feel about it overall politically? Is it something do you think that's helped or that's held you back? I think I think you've summed it up perfectly, Matt. It meant some people have been more inclined to look upon me favourably and others not. Um, of course, I, I grew up in a household with my brothers and my sister where we, my mum, my dad, talked about what was going on in the world. Um, so it, it, it was unusual in that respect, but when you're a child, you assume all families are like your own because you know no different. Um, but they certainly gave us both an interest in, in what was happening. 
But in the end, you have to make your own way and you have to be your own person. And if you have to stand up for what you believe in and say what you think, and that those were values which both my mum and my dad instilled in all of us. Plus an enormous amount of encouragement because what is our responsibility above all as parents? It is to love and encourage our children. There's that's what we have that's what we have to do and what we do with great pleasure because that gives our, our children um, confidence and aspiration and will help them as they make their own way in life to deal with everything that life throws at you, the good and the bad. He seems such a dedicated politician and activist. What was he like as a dad? Was he different as a father or would he tell you off in that kind of Tony Benn way? Well, of course, he'd, he'd tell us off sometimes. He would. Um, he was always working. So we would wander down to the office at the, in the basement of the house, either to borrow some sellotape or some scissors or to say, I've got this bit of homework and I'm not quite sure what to do. Although my mum took much more oversight of that. And she taught me a very important lesson. I would take my homework to her and say, well, now, what do you think of this, mum? And I would think it was perfect and couldn't be improved. And she would always have suggestions. Um, and reading and drafting and redrafting and redrafting again is a very good, I think, skill and a discipline to have. And I know you will have it in your um, varied profession um, and all the things that you do. Uh, he also liked to do do-it-yourself when he was not working, and I, I, I inherited that. I do it very badly, but um, if you want a bodge job, which may last for a bit, with green wire and duct tape, I'm your man. Well, now the select committee work's dried up. Maybe you'll do a sideline. <laughs> well, there you go. Rogue traders. Yeah, there we are. Well, I'm trying to picture Tony yes. Benn and, and Hilary Benn at home. You know, would you say, oh, Hilary, tidy your bedroom? Come on, you've got shocks and pants No, mum would, mum would tell us to tidy our bedroom. And, uh, and then sometimes I'd say, because he was, he was at the Commons and, uh, and mum was at home, and I'd say, mum, I've done all my homework, can I watch the TV? And she would say, uh, no, go and improve yourself. That was one of her <laughs> joke phrases. <laughs> Um, which, and there was a, so there was a strict rule in the house about no telly on a school night, um, which was frustrating sometimes. Now there wasn't much football on the telly in those days. Uh, it was really quite rare, the cup final and England international matches from time to time, uh, complete contrast, um, uh, to now. Um, it was a fund of, of stories and, and jokes and he would he would you know if we went to ask for help he would help out and he's very practical like that when 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 i was a councillor and we lost control of ealing council in 1990 he rang me up very early the following morning and said now h do you want help in clearing your office i was deputy leader and chair of education at the time so we went over to ealing town hall and uh we packed up all the stuff and left and he'd learned that from his ministerial career um, you're, you know, the old phrase, the king is dead, long live the king, which I never understood when I was growing up. Well, how can that be the case? <laughs> but it explains 
the old administration leaves and the new is in place. And he learned that from the time I remember opening the door to a nice man who turned up after the 1970 election to remove the locked filing cabinet and the seals of office that he kept at home because he was no longer the uh, Minister for Technology and they had to take it away to give it to the next person. That transition of power is so brutal in in British politics. We're, we're talking on a day when power is transitioning in yeah. America. And we'll, we'll come on to that. But I, I imagine your upbringing similar to the experience that perhaps Ed and David Miliband had at the feet of Ralph, these these great left-wing intellectuals. And that, I can see that's how get, that gets you into politics. But at what age do you start to, even though you're both Labour politicians, at what point do you start to depart from Benism and become a, a, a Labour moderate. Did, can you remember the, the sort of first stages on that journey? Well, I I, I, I did famously once say I'm uh, I'm a Ben and not a Benite, which is a statement of of fact. I remember one moment in particular, the 1983 general election, which was the first time I stood for Parliament. We were at a public meeting in Ealing, and a woman got up and said. I run, I've built and developed my own employment agency. I find people jobs. And you want to take my business away from me. Because at the time, you may recall, Matt, the policy of the Labour Party was that nobody but the state should be allowed to run uh, and find people jobs. And I remember attempting to give an answer, but it was completely unsatisfactory. And I remember driving home after the meeting, well, no way is that woman ever going to vote for us because she sees the Labour Party as a party that wants to take from her what she has put her heart and soul into. Um, because we thought we knew better for reasons, in that case, ideology. I mean, it seems extraordinary now that the ideology of the party would have been only the state can find people employment. So that, that moment I do uh, remember. And the second thing I would say is, if you're gonna win a majority, because I didn't, when I was 17 and joined the Labour Party, which I think is, uh, you were a bit younger than me when you joined. So I think you got two years on me. I, I didn't join a debating society or a discussion club. I joined a party whose constitution says the aim of our party is to gain representation in parliament. Originally, of course, for working people, because if we're not in government, we can debate till all the cows come home. We can pass as many resolutions as we like, but we can't actually do anything. And to win, you have to win the trust and confidence of the voters. And you want to maximize your support by welcoming all views and all traditions. Governments, of course, have to make uh, decisions. But if you appear to be excluding people, then I, I don't think that's a very um, effective way of trying to win a general election. And I've always believed in Labour as a very, very broad church. So were you perhaps pre-83 a bit more radical than you are now? Did you have a kind of Radical phase, a beard, a copy of the Communist Manifesto. No, I never, I never had a beard. Uh, I have read the Communist Manifesto. I think I did it in part of my university de uh, degree. Um, yes, I think that would be a f that would be a perfectly fair 
comment, but life is about learning and having experiences and reflecting upon those. And for a, for a Labour politician, thinking long and hard about how can we win? Because when I think about my constituents, when I think about those who are at the moment worrying, is the government going to cut the £20 a week increase in universal credit that has been so important to so many of my constituents? You know, this is serious business. It could be the difference between people eating and not eating. Now, we're putting great pressure on the government to carry on with it. I think in the end they'll have to. Uh, and it shows that even though you are in opposition, and this is another important lesson, Matt, you can force the government of the day to change its mind if you've got a good argument and ministers discover they can't actually justify what they're doing. And they're, you know, in the in the contest between Marcus Rashford and Boris Johnson, uh, well, it's at, at least 2-0 to Marcus Rashford. It's an, an, arguably, Boris Johnson has scored both of those as own goals. Well, that that is true. That would be it would be very good to see the match report. John, yes, Rashford United versus Boris Johnson United. Um, Johnson own goal, twenty ninth yeah. minute. Johnson own goal, fifty seventh minute. There you go. Rashford had the assists, of course, but uh, oh, they'd, they'd, yes, of course, there'd be, there'd be Boris Johnson own goals. But I wonder if. <clears throat> whether it was before your time in Parliament or even government. Were you able to talk about politics, Labour politics, with your dad and, and oh, have all these the time. conversations with him? But all the time. And would, would you ever fall out? We'd have different views, but in the end, no, you didn't fall out because um, he, I respected his view, he respected mine, and as I say, he was... He was always very uh, encouraging. They, they might get quite um, interesting and elevated on occasion, but that's how you test your arguments out. Yeah. But yes, no, we talked about politics all the time, as did the whole family, because it was it was a family enterprise. But there was never there was never like a Christmas where people would say, Hillary, now don't get your father going about Tony Blair because you did it last Christmas and it ruined it. <laughs> No, not no, no, not really. He would. Um, no, no, it wasn't. Um, there'd be one or two moments when, when he got a bit, a bit excitable. But there you are. That's because people feel strongly about it. And back in the, I mean, one of the one of the fascinating things about politics is the human dramas that run through it. Yeah. And Jeremy Corbyn ends up leading the Labour Party, arguably owning your father's mantle. And then you and Jeremy Corbyn find yourself, you know, this, this old friend of your dad is then, uh, you know, you, you find yourselves on different parts of the Labour Party uh, in later life when Corbyn becomes leader of the Labour Party. Do, do you remember Jeremy Corbyn from back in the day? Was he, did he used to pop round to the house when you were a, a kid? Yes, yes, he, he would. Um, and they would, if the weather was fine, they'd sit in the garden. Yes, so I, I, I do remember Jeremy, and he was a very close comrade of my dad's. I mean, that must just make it. I mean, this politics is so harsh anyway, and so difficult, particularly when you go through things like Brexit and the the, emo the, the emotional experience that the Labour Party's been through the last five or ten years, and of course, at various points in its history. To think 
It's almost the same when I think about how many people are all at university or the same school together. It must be so strange when your political opponents within your party are people that you remember from your childhood that you would have made a cup of tea for. Well, that that is that is politics. And on each issue, you will either be, you know, on the same side as someone who you, you count as a colleague, and on other occasions you'll be on a different side. Because politics is about being confronted by a series of choices and how you apply your values and your beliefs and your principles and your you know, where you won't go any further than that to the decisions that have to be made. I think it's, it's also quite lonely in many ways because you are an MP elected by your constituents. You're there only because of them. You have a relationship with your constituency party and you may be alliance with someone on, on, on one issue and, and in disagreement with them on another. And you, uh, uh, some people get very exercised about that. But it, it, unless you absolutely agree with someone else on everything, there will be moments when you're on different sides of the argument and that's, that's as it's going to be. And you just have to deal with it. And how, how do you feel about your father's legacy and the way that the people, the custodians of it might invoke it, perhaps? And I, I'm only presuming here, but I imagine in the last five or six years, you may have been meet, in meetings where people have said, Tony Benn would disagree with you. You know, your dad had, um, people may have even said worse things than that. May have, may oh, people have... have said lots of worse things than that. And how do you deal with that? Um, it's... Well, it's not really very pleasant because occasionally I've responded to people and said, what on earth makes you think that it is in any way appropriate to try and use the memory of my late father, who I love very much, to beat me over the head with in a political argument? I mean, it, it shows a lack of uh, humanity and a lack of judgment and an unpleasantness that I uh, very much deprecate. And so, you know, with Twitter, I know it's not quite the real world. Um, the times when you look at something someone said and say, well, that's not as bad as the last one. And other times where you think, oh, for goodness sake, and at least you can respond by blocking them. <laughs> um, and you, you may feel slightly better, I won't have to see that again. But it's... Um, I wonder how they would rationalise it if it was put to them. Because so much of Twitter, to some extent, uh, emails, people will say things at a distance. But I'm not quite sure they would say if they were face to face as you and I are, because although we're doing this for sound, I'm looking at you on Zoom. Um, and isn't possible to accept for someone holds a different view and it doesn't mean they're a thoroughly bad and awful person who should be hounded out of the party. It puts you in a particular position, doesn't it? Being a being a, a Hillary Benn with that surname in the Labour Party and the time that you've been in the Labour Party. During the period when Jeremy Corbyn was leading it, would you ever say to him, I think this is getting out of control or, you know, um, 
I guess what I'm asking is, did did you kind of did you kind of have a special position by sort of dint of the legacy in a way of of, of the surname and of your own political heft that perhaps you were one of the few people on the right of the party that could talk to Jeremy and and, and he might listen or were you seen yeah, as, we... as bad as Tony Blair? No, we we didn't have that kind of relationship. Um, you know, when he asked me to serve in his shadow cabinet, I, I didn't vote for Jeremy on either occasion, as is well known. But I thought that was the decision that the party members had reached. And there was an obligation to serve, uh, which I did. Uh, then there was the difference of view over how to deal with uh, Daesh, ISIS and the Syria uh, debate. And then after the referendum in 2016, I came to the conclusion that it it wasn't working. And I famously said, he's a good and a decent and a principled man, but he's not a leader. And I, we, Labour MPs don't think we're gonna win an election with him as leader. And quite rightly and understandably, he sacked me from the shadow cabinet, which uh, of course he had to do, but it's what I thought. And it's why I took the position I did on the Syria issue, because it's what I thought and believed. And you accept the consequences. But no, we, we didn't we didn't have that kind of relationship, no. And did, uh, I mean, the, the, the speech, as you say, about Daesh in, in Syria is probably yeah. one of the great parliamentary speeches of all time, certainly in the modern era. Um, certainly since Labour left office, probably the best speech a Labour politician has given on the floor of the House of Commons for, for decades. I mean, did... Did it feel like it was going to be a moment like that? I mean, obviously, you're speaking from the heart. This was a considered argument. This was a matter of principle. This was about Britain's role in the world and, uh, you know, Labour values in the world. But did it feel, you know, like it was your big moment? Well, it was a big moment because the Shadow Foreign Secretary doesn't normally wind up a debate expressing a view in opposition to the leader of the party from the same dispatch box. Yeah. I mean, I should tell you, uh, at one point, there was it was mooted that I might speak from the back benches. Uh, but there was a bit of a revolt in the shadow cabinet where this was raised and people said, you can't possibly have that. Uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, there was no Labour whip in that debate, um, which was in recognition of the fact that the parliamentary Labour Party was split. And of course it was a big occasion. Um, Yes, but the, re the reason why I had formed that view was because I had watched, as we all had, what Daesh had been doing, and I was truly appalled and horrified and distressed and saddened by what they were doing. And I saw it in that sense in quite simple terms. People are in real trouble. These atrocities are being committed. And you have a choice in those circumstances when someone asks you for help. You either say, sorry, um, not my problem, hope it turns out for you, and walk by on the other side of the road, to use the analogy I used in my speech, or you say, okay, we're prepared to come and do our bit, which was the other phrase I used at the end of the speech, to assist. Um, and I thought the choice was very clear, and I invoked a Labour tradition in fighting fascists, because that's what I believe Daesh, ISIS uh, were and are. 
um, because if you're not going to stand up for them, and we are a proud internationalist party, and we believe in human rights, we believe in justice, well, when are you going to extend uh, support to those who are in, you know, in terrible trouble? And if it was the other way around, I think we would hope that someone would come and help. It was a, it's a brutal and a terrible conflict because um, defeating them in the end involved forces on the ground. It also involved strikes from the air. And that is the reality, the brutal reality of war. But the alternative is not. Well, I can, I can sit with my conscience and think, well, I didn't result in anyone. My decisions didn't result in anyone being killed because lots of people were killed and raped and enslaved by Daesh when people weren't taking them on. Um, so you know, when you are absolutely clear in your own mind as to what the right thing to do is, it's not that difficult to express it and to vote for it. The impact of it wasn't just that it was so well written and so brilliantly delivered. It wasn't just that your speech was better than anything the government had said. It was also that really post Iraq, Labour's position on intervention in general, really, had been seen as a form of retreat, that there was a post-Iraq paralysis gripping the Labour Party that, that arguably still lasts to, to this day. Obviously, a lot of people on the left would always been would have always been anti-any war. But do you think that that's part of the reason why the speech was so impactful was that actually people hadn't heard a Labour politician make the moral case for intervention since Tony Blair? Well, you have to judge each set of circumstances on them, their merits, the facts. And in a way, the, the previous big test was indeed the Second World War. Now, I respect pacifists, I do. Uh, but I am not a pacifist. Uh, my father wasn't a pacifist. My grandfather wasn't a pacifist. And the Labour Party has not been a pacifist political party. And therefore, what was the argument in 1939? Well, we'd seen what Hitler had done in uh, Czechoslovakia and then Austria, the invasion of Poland. Was it the right thing to do to fight that conflict, which probably resulted in, in many more people dying than if we just said, all right, Herr Hitler, off you go. Nothing to do with us. Um, and if that was the right thing to do then, when I looked at Daesh and ISIS, I thought it was pretty clear cut, particularly as there was an international coalition already taking them on, and particularly because we were already taking them on in Iraq. And the question was, should we extend our airstrikes? We were patrolling in the air in Syria already. And I quoted from the uh, Kurdish representative in uh, London when he referred to the fictional uh, border, the fictional frontier, because Daesh were moving their forces back and forth. So it seemed to me the right and, and the sensible thing to do. Now, there have been interventions that people will reflect on and, and think were a mistake. There are others that have been very important. I was listening to Samantha Power talking on actually Desert Island Discs recently. And she described how as a war correspondent before she became a diplomat for the United States of America, uh, the impact that what she'd seen in Bosnia had had on her and the importance of, of military intervention to prevent um, the, the, the genocide that was uh, taking place there. You look at the events in 
in Srebrenica, uh, uh, absolutely horrifying. Um, in the end, we'll all be judged. What did we do when the time came? Now, people can argue afterwards it was the wrong decision. Uh, but I think to try and help uh, is the right thing to do. And after all, the, you know, the history of the post-war period, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the creation of the United Nations out of the ashes of the Second World War, was the world saying to itself, now come on, look at what we've been through, two world wars. How can we organize things so this doesn't happen again? And the principles are uplifting and inspiring, but if you're on the receiving end of genocide, or you're being raped or sexually enslaved and or murdered and dumped in a pit or a gay man being thrown off the top of a building because you are gay, insofar as you're thinking about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at that moment, your last thought might be, well, when is anyone going to come and avail me of what it says here? And what the world is grappling with at an international level is how do we deal with the threats to peace and security? in the way in which we've managed to do in many countries by having the rule of law and justice and a police force, um, because we wouldn't accept the United Kingdom where there was a civil war in Manchester and a genocide in uh, Ipswich. So, but that is a world in which we are living and we're still struggling to create the means to make sure that people can grow up and live their lives in peace and security, which is what everybody wants. Why don't you think that elements of, of the Labour Party, particularly to the further reaches of the left, don't share that view? Um, I think I think partly it's anything that the United States of America is involved in must be bad. I, I'll give you an example. The, what happened in Darfur, which I was very heavily involved in as the International Development Secretary, people had been burned out of their homes, they'd been murdered, they were in camps in Darfur. The two countries that were doing most to look after them were the United States of America and the United Kingdom in terms of humanitarian support. Were there huge demonstrations in London organized by um, the Stop War Coalition against what General Bashir and the Janjaweed were doing? No. Nothing. Silence. So I think it's a, I think it was a selective um, opposition. Um, similarly, when the RUF and the West Side Boys in Sierra Leone were running around chopping people's arms and legs off, and eventually we, we got involved and they were defeated. Uh, was that the right thing to do? Yes, it was. I, I think it's a combination of uh, of passivism and a one-sided view. And if people were out protesting about all conflicts, well, that would be different. But it seems rather selective to me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And where do you think, I mean, obviously Labour needs to be in government really to, 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 to have this influence, but Britain's role in the world um, yeah. is something that we all kind of struggle with, particularly those on the left, um, about the problems that we've caused, about the role that we can play, about how much our history should inform the actions we take in the future. And, and you can sense that on the left. You know, people talk about empire, and they they talk about it with regards to Brexit, and they talk about it with regards to Iraq and other and other um, invasions and uh, and other uh, interventions. That seems to really trouble people on the left. It is this sense that we still think you know that any view that the empire was good or that we're trying to recreate it is is a is an inherently negative thing. What what is the Hillary Benn view, and and therefore I might uh, by extension infer the the modern Labour view of what Britain's role in the world should be? Well, we have a past and a history that has brought us to where we are today. It's the reason why we are one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, why we are obviously a leading country in the uh, Commonwealth. But we are not the superpower that we were at the beginning of the 20th century. We're not, and this is a country that is that is coming to terms with that. But we have got a lot going for us as a country. You look at the strength of our scientific research, uh, look at the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, look at the number of Nobel Prizes we win. One of my memorable uh, visits during the uh, time as chair of the Brexit Select Committee was going to Cambridge to look at the impact of Brexit on science. And we were taken on a tour. And the two tour guides had both won the Nobel prize. And wow. I will never experience that again. Uh, you look at the influence of our art and our music and our television and our film industry. You look at our language, which has become uh, hugely important uh, in the world. Uh, you look at our um, the leadership we have shown in development policy. It's really striking that uh, Theresa May has attacked uh, Boris Johnson for what he's done in cutting the aid budget, because that's not leadership. That is running away from choices. Are you actually saying, even in the middle of these difficult circumstances, that we're going to break the promise we made to the world's poorest people? Um, that is wrong. And, and one of the reasons I oppose Brexit so strongly is I think it diminishes our voice in the world. Now, Behind this is the great political uh, question of our time. And it is this, if you ask 
a number of my constituents, you know, do you feel you have any control or say over what's happened to you, your life, your community? They would say, no, I don't. If you live in areas which in which the old industries have disappeared and been replaced by zero hours, contract jobs and warehousing work and having to work two jobs to feed a family compared to when one person could have earned a decent wage, the world doesn't look as if it's changed for the better. And when someone comes along, as in Brexit, and says, do you feel you've got any control? No. Would you like to have some more? Yes, please. And, you know, lots of people in my constituency came out to vote in that referendum who had never voted in a general election because they felt, well, I can actually achieve a change by my vote. And they did. And one has to understand uh, that. And allied to that, the desire for self-determination, devolution, you look at Catalonia, you look at Scotland and so on. And that is one political force. But there is another political force, which is the absolute necessity of cooperating with other countries if we're going to deal with the great challenges the world faces. How are we going to tackle dangerous climate change by working with others? How are we going to deal with those threats to peace and security, to deal with the Daeshes of the future? How are we going to feed people who are starving? How are we going to manage, if we don't deal with climate change, when human beings start to move because they are not staying where they are, to drown or to die of thirst. And I have met climate refugees who had moved from their village because it had stopped raining. And like many things in life, in our personal lives, in politics, this is about the balance between the two. And in a way, the referendum on Brexit was a majority saying, we think the balance isn't quite right in Europe. And I'm very much in favor of a European Union, which I want to see prosper, in which uh, there is a greater recognition that different countries may want to sign up for different levels of integration. This bedeviling of the debate with ever closer, deeper union, it was never going to happen in practice. We had opt-outs on Schengen, on the Euro. It showed what influence Britain had as a member of the European Union, but we have um, decided to dispense with that relationship, which is really important in having influence in the world. And the final point I'd make, Matt, is this huge debate about sovereignty. Now, I can make you sovereign. Is there anyone else in the room that you're talking me from? No, no, just me and you. Right. Well, I will lock the door and I'll walk away. You're sovereign. Matt, I've made you sovereign. Amazing. And what are you going to do? Prime Minister. Oh. What um... are you going to do with your sovereignty? And the answer is, where does it get you? (laughs) It doesn't get you anywhere. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. The, well, I don't know what you can do, but it's not going to directly impact on other people, apart from your ability to communicate through Zoom. I'm going and to decree so that Nottingham Forest are in the Premier League forever. Well, and now, OK. Spurs, uh, well, Hotspur, never allowed to compete in Europe. Oh, uh, OK. Well, now, that, there's no need to bring an unnecessary point of controversy into our very pleasant <laughs> discussion so late in the day. The point is, it's what you do with your sovereignty that will affect your ability as a country to advance the interests of your citizens, to protect them, to build a safer, a more stable and a more secure world. And you pool your sovereignty in return for benefits that you gain. After all, if the Brexiteers believed in absolute sovereignty, why did they negotiate to give away, as they would put it, any of our fish? The fact is, Uh, they knew you'd have to reach some kind of agreement when we take on obligations and we gain benefits in return. What about your career then? Uh, I always felt you were someone who should have and would have 
stood for the Labour leadership and giving it a, you know, a, a one or two goes at the leadership, I thought you'd have a crack at. You stood for the deputy in 2007. Did that experience put you off or have you never harboured any leadership ambition? Um, it, as I've said many times before, it's not a, a job that I want to do. I don't think I would be very good at it. Um, but so many people disagree. I mean, you must have people coming to you saying, oh, Henry, you should have been leader of the Labour Party. I mean, when you see the way the Labour Party went, certainly in the last 10 years after, after leaving office, do you not think... Oh, I could have, I could have stopped that. If it had been me, been leader instead of Ed Miliband, or me instead of Jeremy Corbyn, none of this would have happened. I think they were very difficult times for whoever was leader of the Labour Party, but um, I know my limitations. <laughs> this is it's something that unites you and Alan Johnson to really popular modern Labour politicians who the public. I mean, Ken Clark stood for the leadership of the Tory party a few times, yeah. but it always seems to me so odd that the people who are so popular with the public either can't command that popularity within the party or periodically can and, and don't even put themselves forward. I mean, it well, I haven't always felt incredibly bizarre. popular. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, that's it. Maybe that's got something to do with it as well. But the, I remember you standing for, I remember seeing you um, give a speech at the Derby dinner. Uh, a kind of infamous event in the Labour Party calendar when I used to work for the party in the East Midlands. It was this huge event at Pride Park and Margaret Beckett was there and everything. I remember you having a joke about your dad lending you some Ben for Deputy badges. That, that he had is very true over. and I, I did wear them on the campaign trail and when we came to the end of the deputy leadership I had made um, a set of t-shirts and on the front I put the photographs of the six candidates and on the back I put the tour dates for all the hustings <laughs> that we've done. And when we gathered to hear the result, I gave two of them to the five other candidates. I thought we shouldn't let this moment pass without having a T-shirt for posterity. And I've got mine somewhere in a drawer. Well, I was going and, to ask as a, as a you know, and Harry of political and, memorabilia. Uh, and Alan and Peter and uh, Hazel and Alan may still have theirs or they may have been turned... Uh, they may have been turned into useful dust cloths. Who knows? <laughs> I, I, do you remember the event in Leicester that Keith Vaz hosted? I, I spoke to Martin Angus, who you really remember, a former Labour staffer. Who Indeed, was I remember Martin. John Prescott, when he walloped that bloke in real. But we were reminiscing, because I remember working at that event. And Roy Kennedy, who's now Lord Roy Kennedy, I remember turning up at that event as a staffer. He said, I've told Keith, no food, no garlands. You know, can't have any of that, mate. Can't have any garlands, mate. And then the deputy leadership candidates turned up and Keith Vazard had these huge banners made of you all that were like bigger than life size with your faces on it. You were greeted, there were sort of trays of samosas came in and it was this huge, it felt like you'd visited a, another country and you were visiting dignitaries. It was such a, it's one of the funniest Labour Party events I've ever been to. It was so overdone and I, I don't know if that has just... It had been lost in your memory banks so or whether you have any... Uh, to be perfectly honest, and until you reminded me, it had been lost <laughs> um, uh, to my memory. All, all I know from that campaign is that by the end, we could each have recited each other's speeches word perfect. But after that, did you think uh, uh, that, um, was it almost regardless, of, I mean, obviously, had you become deputy leader of the Labour Party, that may have changed things. But at that, at that point, did you think, I don't really fancy ever running for anything like that ever again? Um, well, I didn't want to, but as I've said, I, I wasn't going to stand to be leader and 
things move on, you know? Times change and the next generation comes along. Uh, a political party renews itself all the time. Um, and you gain experience as you uh, get older, but the future is for the next generation. It is indeed. Uh, Keir Starmer is now the leader of the Labour Party. Already it feels as though the party is starting to, to move on, certainly from the defeat of the last election, although there's a lot of work for Keir Starmer to do with yes. regards to the direction of the party and what the party stands for, and that's all on pause because of COVID. Um, I mean, you're, you're a big beast. You're, you're a kind of, I guess you are a Ken Clark figure of the Labour Party, someone who served in the last Labour government, who's chaired a select committee with distinction, who's been a Labour MP for, for quite a period of time now. If Keir Starmer offered you a job in a reshuffle, would you take it? That is what's known as a hypothetical question, Matt, uh, which I'm going to, I'm inclined to answer. I mean, I, there are lots of other things that I want to do now. I'm not chairing the select committee, but I, I have to say I have the greatest respect and admiration for Keir. Uh, I nominated him, <clears throat> excuse me, I uh, voted for him. I think he's doing a great job because he understands, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that the first requirement is to win people's trust and confidence. And at this stage in the electoral cycle it's not about the policies on which we're going to fight the next election because who knows what the circumstance is going to be and you know in 2019 we had policy coming out of our ears and part of the problem was people didn't believe it they didn't believe it and it, Nye Bevan famously said socialism is the language of priorities being in government is about priorities um, and making decisions between a moderate outcome and a really bad one um, it's tough, it's difficult, but I think Keir is doing a great job to convey that sense of who he is in marked contrast to the man we currently have as Prime Minister, who if he promises again that Covid will be over in a couple of months time, which he's done repeatedly during the course of the last year, um, and ultimately if, if that is the choice, I, I really hope and believe that we can when next time, but it's a long, long journey that we are engaged upon, but I can't think of anyone better to lead us as we take each step than Keir. And I know this is difficult because there hasn't been an annual conference. You're not having that same connection with the Labour Party members face to face, locally or nationally that you would. Obviously you can do these things online and you get a sense perhaps from polling. Yeah. Do you think the Labour Party is ready to go on that journey with care or in, a, in an election winning direction or does it still is it still to use a word you used earlier sort of bedeviled by this desire for ideological purity well, the labor party has always wrestled with that throughout its history this is not there's not a new challenge hasn't arisen in the last 10 or 15 years but ultimately i suppose it that's best expressed as you know a no compromise with the electorate now, fine. And it does mean you can always be right. You, But passing resolutions, important though they are, because many of the policies of which we are most proud that we were able to put into effect as a Labour government started life somewhere in a resolution from a Labour Party branch. So 
we mustn't decry or undervalue the importance of that of that dialogue, uh, how things move on. But ultimately, we have to decide, are we a party that is serious about winning power? Not at any cost. But are we going to focus our attention on making sure that we do win next time? Because I don't want to be sitting here in five years time discussing what a future Tory government is doing and we are powerless, powerless to help the people that we seek to represent, which is all the people of the country. And our message must be an inclusive one, not to divide between one group in society uh, and another, because people want to look at politicians, they want to look at Keir as a future prime minister and think, is he looking out for me? Is he going to advance the interests of the country as a whole? Is he going to make us safer? Is he going to deal with the crisis of low pay and not enough housing? And I mean, the, the list of uh, issues we've got is very, very long. Are we going to see a government that really levels up uh, as opposed to one that talks about levelling up, but I fear is going to level down? And that's the current Conservative government that we've ended up um, with in this country. We haven't really spoken about your time in government, which is uh, reflects very badly on me as an interviewer. But I, I just wonder, you served yeah. as uh, international, um, uh, international Development Secretary, uh, Secretary of State for DEFRA. You've been Shadow Foreign Secretary, obviously taking leadership out of it. Indulge me in a kind of fantasy football um, question. Oh. What would Hillary Benn's ideal cabinet post be to serve as? Well, I have to say that being International Development Secretary was a was an absolute privilege. I learned so much. You know, when I took up that post, I realised how ignorant I was. In the true sense of the word, I am ignorant means I do not know. And I learned and it shaped the way in which I see and think about uh, the world. The point about being in government is that you can try and change things. I'm really proud of the fact that we fought so hard for debt relief and increased aid at the uh, Glen Eagle Summit. And that was led by Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, that really powerful partnership. I'm proud of the fact that we led the way to reform the international humanitarian system, a proposal I, I originally set out in a speech I gave because it struck me that when disaster occurred, the UN would appeal for money to be able to respond, to provide tents and water and shelter and medical supplies. And it was a bit like having a fire brigade where you rang up to say, there's a fire. And the fire brigade would put the phone down and say, right, issue an appeal. Can anyone give us a ladder? Can anyone promise to pay for the diesel? Um, you ought to have a standing capacity to start to get to work and then you can build on that later depending on the scale of the crisis and that was eventually adopted at the united nations where i spoke and britain was the largest contributor uh, the common emergency Resp response fund as it's called the surf or i look at the climate change act which i introduced to parliament now that too was a team effort it had been ev evolved as an idea when david Miliband was the environment secretary and then the final implementation of it was passed on to ed Miliband when the Department of Energy and Climate Change was created. I, um, I established the South Downs National Park, which was the final park 
on the list that a man called Arthur Hobhouse had drawn up in 1947 as the list of beautiful places in England that should be made national parks. The 1949 Labour government created and passed the National Parks Act amidst all of the suffering and the economic chaos and the debt of the Second World War, a Labour government legislated to preserve beauty for posterity. Now, if that isn't the power of values and politics and being in office uh, to do something that really will still be there for future generations, I don't know what is. And the thing about the Labour Party is we, we always look at the moment and we are acutely conscious of the things that are still wrong and we haven't sorted out. And we must never, ever lose that sense of aspiration to change things for the better. But there are moments when you should just pause. You've climbed up part of the hill and you're getting your breath back and you turn and you look into the distance and you see from whence you have come. The creation of the National Health Service, what we did for education in 97, the huge social changes, the abolition of capital punishment, um, equal pay, sex discrimination, race discrimination, um, uh, the Sexual Offences Act, some of which were private members' bills, but supported by the government at the time. And this has led to transformation in our society. And when people ask, if people came from that generation ago, two generations, 200 years ago, and looked at what we've achieved today, despite the real difficulties of COVID, which we haven't talked about, which is just dreadful and so sad. And they asked the question, how did we get from where we were to a world in which all of our children in this country go to school? That wasn't the case 200 years ago. There's a health service that looks after all of us, not according to our wealth, but to our need. The answer is it was politics. It was a process of political, social and economic development. And the Labour Party has been at the centre of that. And long may that continue in the years ahead as we pass on to the next generation, because we're on the earth for a short time. And when you come to the end of your life, to be able to look back and say, well, there's something that I did and this is what we did together. Um, well, I think that's that is what life is all about, doing your bit. Oh, I can't I can't think of a better note to, to finish on. Hilary, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, I've enjoyed talking uh, to you uh, about the things that we've discussed very much, Matt. And you did make reference to my support for Tottenham Hotspur. I should point out, Ellen Road is in my constituency and I'm proud uh, to be the MP for Leeds United. And it's great they're back in the premiership. But my heart and soul is with uh, Tottenham Hotspur. And I was reflecting on uh, one game I went to see Spurs play against Chelsea and it was pouring with rain. And I walked from home in Notting Hill Gate to Stamford Bridge. I stood in a crowd of 61,000. It rained, it rained, it rained, it rained. It was nil-nil after 89 minutes and I thought, I think I might just slip away to avoid the crowds. I walked all the way home, soaking wet, came in, turned on the telly, and in the, you know, um, in the famous words, Chelsea nil, Tottenham Hotspur two, because Alan Mullery and Jimmy Pierce had scored in extra time. And looking back on it, I heard a sort of faint sound as I was walking away from the ground. Uh, I think the Spurs fans were so stunned by these late goals. So it was, you know, three, three hours, three plus hours of my life, and I hadn't actually seen Spurs score, but it, it's remained with me because I was a drowned rat when I came home. But there we are. And have you, 
Did that change your behaviour? Do you never leave a game early now? Uh, no, I have left. I have left <laughs> games early, but there's now there's so much on television, and and that's something we've been able to do in in lockdown. And I I think it's important for the for those of us who are football fans, and that's not everyone. And people have done all sorts of things, reading and taking up crafts, and I mean you name it, exercise. But being able to watch sport is I think important for our morale and given that this is so difficult for so many people um we need to keep each other's morale up while we uh just stand in awe of the efforts of the health service people in our local authorities volunteers who are looking after people in real trouble and difficulty and trying to save lives and once again we all have to do our bit to help them have you seen the Amazon documentary, the, the Spurs? I have one. not oh, yet. I've got to see it. And I, I, I know it's on my it's on my list of things I ought to see. What what struck you most about it, Matt? Mourinho. It made me absolutely love him. I, I liked him when he first came over when he was Chelsea boss. And Chelsea aren't an easy team to like. And then I kind of went off him a bit. I thought he'd got a bit mardy and moody. But this documentary made me fall in love with him. I think he's one of the funniest people alive. <laughs> it just made me love him. I couldn't take my eyes off him. And it it made me, I've always liked Harry Kane, but you know, the football he's got you playing, particularly Kane and Son together are just oh, majestic. To what watch. a combination. But do you know, they, there was a, a, there was a zoom call of MPs and peers who support Spurs with the club about two and a bit months ago. And uh, they said that uh, uh, Jose is going to come and talk, you know, answer questions. And I thought, well, he'd turn up, be polite, and then go off because he's got other things to do, right? And, do you know, he stayed and he stayed and he stayed and he answered every single question and uh, was very open in the way that he spoke. And I thought he was utterly charming. Well, I interviewed Tracy Crouch a couple of weeks ago and I think ah, she was on that call. She mentioned she was, She was. She was. And I don't, I don't know what... I haven't listened to, to that podcast of yours, but um, I think did she, she might have asked the first question. Um, but it was a no, it was a memorable occasion and it was very nice of them to do it. And apparently he said afterwards, he said, I had no idea there were so many MPs and peers who were Spurs supporters. So they... Get down there, get a freebie down at that new stadium when it reopens. <laughs> well, we look forward to when we can, when we can return go back. to ground. And we haven't spoken. I realise I've kept you for longer than I said I would. No, well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm enjoying it. That's the trouble. Well, that's good. Cause so am I. So maybe just a couple of minutes more then if I can be okay. committed. But we're, we're talking on a day when um, yeah. America now has a Democratic president. Um, it's such a huge deal. Someone whose politics are very similar to yours. Um, he infamously borrowed a line or two from Neil Kinnock back in the day, Joe Biden. Uh, have, you, have your paths ever crossed? Have you ever met him? No, I have never met him. But I, like lots of people, have been looking forward to today um, with great and, well, relief. That was my feeling when he won, just profound relief. You know, my mum was an American, a proud American. She was from Cincinnati, Ohio. And when Donald Trump won four years ago, I know we're, as politicians meant to say, we will work with the leader of the United States of America. but. Well, she, me, lots of other people were absolutely horrified when this man was elected the president of the, for me, the land of my mother's uh, birth. I have great affection for the United States, 
and for the American people. And it's been a nightmare. It's been an absolute nightmare. And he lost and Joe Biden beat him. But there's a terrible legacy because in any democracy, Matt, where you have such a large proportion of the population who believe, you know, that the result was a fake and a fraud, how can you function? And the responsibility for that rests with Donald Trump and all of those Republican supporters of him who, especially the latter group, who knew it wasn't true, but didn't have the courage to stand up and tell the truth to the American people. And the other group I feel so sorry for are the election officials. You know, I think of the election officials in Leeds who do a fantastic job, local and parliamentary elections. They're dedicated, they're committed. And to say of all of them, you have been party to a fraud when they have one objective, which they carry out superbly to the best of their ability, which is to count the votes. And at the end, you look at the piles and you've got the result. It's truly shocking to treat people in that way. And Joe Biden, with his, his manner, his approach, his desire to heal, to bring people together, uh, we wish him every success in the task that he now faces. Um, and although it won't be the inauguration that anyone hoped because of coronavirus, you know, a ring of steel, lots of National Guardsmen and so on, already in the next few days, we will see what a difference it makes. And America coming back into the climate change agreement, well, that is moving from a, a world in which you think I'm not interested in international cooperation, um, which was Trump's approach, America first, to Biden saying, yeah, the climate crisis is real and we're going to have to be part of the solution. And we're coming back in, folks. And that is a cause for hope, isn't it? It's a huge cause for hope and, and particularly for Labour people here. Uh, Labour has often looked to the Democrats as it looks to sister parties across the world. But yeah. particularly one thinks of the, the Blair and Clinton axis, changing the Democrats and changing the Labour Party. Biden gives a blueprint to Keir Starmer, perhaps for how to win. The context is different. The, the countries are different. But we have a populist leader here who's not Donald Trump, but is Boris Johnson. And he brings his own uh, challenges. I guess Starmer um, can learn from Biden. Well, we need to learn from everybody. Um, but I'm sure that he is going to show great and good leadership um, when it comes to the United States of America's role in the world. And I look, I look forward to a day when President Biden and Prime Minister Keir Starmer get a chance to meet up. And there's well, something to hold, to hold in our minds. To there give you go. Time. We'll see if that ever happens. Um, Hillary. I will now end the interview. I promised to do it about 20 minutes ago. Because even though you've been very polite, I know you have a very busy life. So uh, I'm very, very grateful. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, I've enjoyed it very much indeed, Matt. And I wish you all the best. Cheers, Hilary. I wanted so much more time and I knew I'd kept him. And then it, it was that thing where I slightly um, abused his good nature at the end there because the conversation carried on even after I'd said, oh, we should wind it up. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll try and get a bit more out. But my God, I want to do just hours purely on that Theresa May period and and Hillary's role as chair of the Select Committee and the Ben Act. I mean, you could do a special just on the Ben Act and the circumstances around that. 
let alone a special about the Syria speech, the Dias speech. Um, oh, my God. I mean, it's so... The reason why, in the end, we didn't talk much about his time in government is, in a way, he's since Labour have left office. The opposition years, in a way, have been more interesting for Hillary Benn as chair of that select committee, as playing that leading role in Parliament um, with the Benn Act. Um, and, and of course, that, that speech uh, as shadow foreign secretary about ISIS. So there's just obviously so much more and I say this regularly, so much more. When you talk to someone of that stature, of that pedigree and of that experience, I'm often told, oh, people don't want a long list. And I think podcasts have conclusively proved that not to be the case. That There's a huge market for long list and interviews. And I know that as a listener, I love really long interviews. I love the detail. But it is, you know, and I don't think an hour is enough. And I know I've said this a lot. But you can't just talk to Hillary Benn for an hour and cover all the things that you would want to cover if you're having a decent conversation about it. So I don't know whether I could ever say to a guest, maybe we could do a kind of series. Um, but also, I think it's always good to leave them wanting more. So even though I sometimes end thinking, oh, I wanted to go, you can't cover everything. So uh, it's always nice to have the door open for, for a return. And of course, once life does return to normal and it's safe, these live events will happen again and it'll be great to be back and to be able to interview politicians in front of an audience. Until then, um, I have an extensive list of some amazing guests coming up, um, which I'm very excited about. But I, as you know, I always am. I don't think I've ever interviewed a guest and not been excited to pick their brains, ask them about their career and ask them about their ideas. So thank you. Thank you for sharing this um, and previous episodes. Do leave a review on iTunes. I ask every time. Because this issue is never going to go away. It will always be a good idea to leave a review on iTunes. It will always be the right thing to do. So if you wouldn't mind doing that, thank you very much. You can email the show, uh, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, with any guest suggestions, requests, or feedback, or just thoughts you've had. It's always good to have a conversation with people after this about things that they uh, noticed or knew or contributions you can make to the debate so that's always uh, a positive thing but what a wonderful hopeful day uh, the day that joe biden has become president of the united states and um you know the hope that politics around the world might just improve a little um and of course tempered by as hillary says uh, the forces that have been unleashed uh, by trump by that populism haven't immediately gone away there is still a, a sore there and it's for all of us all of us who care about the world which hopefully is every listener of this podcast at the very least um to, to do something about it so anyway yes i've waffled on uh, as, for, for quite long enough um i hope you're well and i'll see you next week Ta-ra. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.